This podcast is brought to you by UserWise. UserWise is the world's most powerful player retention platform, revolutionizing how game studios all over the world operate their live game using personalization, A-B testing, automation, and more, all without needing the help of a developer. What makes UserWise unique is that unlike in-house tooling that's built for only one game or lifecycle marketing tools that focus on customer communication, UserWise was designed specifically for any game to retain players and grow revenue. In today's era of gaming, live ops is no longer a luxury. It's crucial for a game to succeed. You need to run events, test battle passes, deliver push notifications, personalize the gameplay, and plan your content. With UserWise, you can do all of this and more in an easy-to-use interface designed for live ops and product teams. UserWise is truly your one-stop shop for operating and scaling your game. All live ops tools will allow you to edit your game, but UserWise gives you speed, personalization, scalability, and the features you need to retain your players. To learn more, visit userwise.io to schedule a demo and see how UserWise can change the way you operate your game. Hey everyone, uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastery Retention Podcast. Uh, today's going to be a really fun, fun episode. Uh, we have Joachim Hergbind with us uh, from Fun Rock. Um, yeah, uh, super excited to talk to you about a topic that I don't really think gets that much uh, focus on, and that is kind of this idea designing for a target audience. Um, what happens when that uh, audience isn't exactly you, which I think often happens, uh, even if we are making a game for ourselves, I feel like we very quickly realize that maybe like we wouldn't be the most engaged player group of, uh, you know, this target or the feature that we're making isn't just for us. So how do we put ourselves in the shoes of the audience and understand what drives them, what keeps them engaged? Uh, so that we really make the best experiences for them. Because, you know, after all, making games is fun, but it's really for the players, right? Um, so uh, before we dive into that, uh, I always like to start with, you know, kind of the story of Joachim. Uh, you know, how did you get into games and, and how did you end up where you are today? All right. So, I mean, obviously, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, an honor. Sure. A great podcast. Uh, so, uh, I played a lot of games, obviously, all through my life. It's uh, a thing now. People in my age, uh, middle age, you kind of uh, have a lot of uh, computer games behind you. And uh, I always loved games. And I did some programming, made, made a few games when I was re- like very simple games in QBasic when I was uh, a teenager, a long, long time ago. And then um, I was actually working in the, the IT industry as a consultant and doing different things, networking servers, these kind of things. Technical stuff, really fun. Things. But uh, one day, my one of my friends, he uh, was a freelance uh, graphics artist at the time, doing a lot of uh, marketing work, and I was freelancing as well in the IT sector. And he just said, "Oh, I would just love to make games. That would be so much fun." And so I said, "Me too, definitely. That would be amazing." So uh, what happened was that we quit our freelance uh, uh, gigs that we had at the time, and we started a company and started making few games and. Uh, yeah, I learned Unity. I never heard of it before. Uh, and he was doing the graphics, of course. And uh, it was a great two and a half years uh, doing this, the two of us. It was amazing in all kinds of ways. 
except economically. That was not so great, but we learned a lot. <laughs> That's how we got into the industry, both of us. Afterwards, we got, he started working at King. I started working at Tokia um, Bokia, a Swedish company making kids games. And that's where we kind of started it. But we didn't know anything about the market. We didn't know anything that was feasible, free to play. We were a few years behind the market uh, thinking, just make a game and it's going to work out. It didn't. But I think eventually, after probably five years from we started, we actually broke even. We were break even on the money we put in, so to speak. So I, I call that a success. That's, that's a success. You know, I, I always told my wife when I started my first company, I was like, if, if we can like make enough money that I pay off our debts or whatnot, like I, I, I consider that a win. Definitely, yes. Yeah, and then uh, def- uh, just to continue in the business afterwards. Uh, yeah. But I've been here in, in Sunrock and Prey Studios now for six and a half years. Yeah. Uh, what have you been doing at uh, Sunrock over those years? Like what titles? I know you're head of studio now, but uh, yeah, well, what's that kind of look like? So initially, it was a six-month uh, uh, consultancy gig, basically. They said, okay, let's, uh, we need just to finish this game here and uh, it'll take about six months. So I started as a uh, programmer. I was doing uh, Unity coding the client and uh, it was a 4X project. And, um, but it was actually supposed to be a port of a previous web game to mobile. So it was supposed to be a much, much smaller project than it turned out to be uh, Eventually, but I started as a programmer and then uh, I was leading the front end team for a while when we staffed up with a lot more people for this. And uh, then I was doing, uh, started doing game design as well, moving more to the product uh, direction of things. And um, yeah, eventually uh, taking care of studio as, a head, as the head of studio since I've been involved in most things. The only thing I don't do hands on is, is graphics, basically. No, 2D or 3D or anything like that. I know how it works, but I can't do anything. I've always had this dream where I could be artistic and and talented. You know, I I figured out that uh, I couldn't draw. So I was like, oh, I'll teach myself Blender. And then I I figured out that, oh, you still have to be able to visualize and put the thing. So, you know, um, kudos to artistic people. My wife is an amazing artist. I cannot. (laughs) Me neither. But, uh, no. I, I I love artists and uh, appreciate the things that they can do. So so that's cool. So this MMO title, um, it was really meant to be focused on kind of the 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 Mena region, uh, kind of like a, a game of sultans, as you would specifically cater towards uh, that population. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, yes, it was a very. I would have to say now. Afterwards, that the, the CEO, David Wallander, that created the, the uh, started Sunrock, he had this mission of creating games for the Middle Eastern region and uh, specifically strategy games. Figured that was a good match. And it turned out, uh, I mean, this was before um, any of these uh, big Forex games that are uh, super big now. And even before um, uh, Need a Hard uh, 3 or the English type, I don't remember, but that was one of the biggest first ones there in the area. That was bought by Steelfront um, and turned out to be really, really good uh, monetization-wise and everything. So that was his plan, but uh, we couldn't execute fast enough, basically, uh, to be in that spot. So they kind of were before us. Uh, But the plan was uh, all along to make uh, localized, not only by text, but more 
localized in that sense to really fit the region. So, so you guys are based in Sweden, though. Um, so how would you have approached or how did you approach even understanding like what, what these people, you know, want and how they think and how they behave and how do you actually localize a game, you know, for Middle Eastern countries? Like for me, I, I know basically nothing about like their daily life and their beliefs and all those cultural things that I think, you know, you, you don't really realize you understand all those things when you're like living in the U.S., but it's vastly different even if I was to then move over to Sweden, right? There's just a lot of little things that you just pick up on that aren't really readily available because people just know them. Yeah, definitely. And I obviously didn't know anything about this at all. And I was just uh, code this game, go for it. Okay, I will do it. And I wasn't involved in the product or game design initially either. But uh, I think the turning point, obviously, David is super sharp, uh, extremely good uh, CEO and, and a good uh, person in general, uh, had a great vision. And I guess, I don't think that he understood the complexity of it as well either. Initially, none of us did, I think. But so we kind of just did what we thought was good, basically. But quite soon after I joined the company, probably about, I'm not sure exactly, six months later, maybe, something like that, we hired a uh, a guy that was living in Sweden, worked at True Caller before, and his name is Mike Dishelta. He's now the CEO of the Chandra. Uh, so he's the CEO of, of the company where I work right now. And he is from Egypt originally, but he came to Sweden back then, I think it was a few years earlier, to do a master's program at KTH. And uh, he started working at True Caller, leading their marketing efforts in the MENA and uh, uh, Northern Africa region, India as well, something like that. And um, so we hired him basically. And he obviously knows the region, knows the culture, knows everything. And at that point, we also set up a studio in Egypt with mm -hmm. uh, developers and uh, QA and CRM. Obviously, we have to have someone that can uh, interact <laughs> with the customers properly. Yep. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, when we kind of got the knowledge a bit more hands on what we actually need to do and what, how to kind of understand the, the audience a bit more. Yeah. So do you think that, you know, if I really want to create a game for the U.S., say, I should be located in the U.S. from like a studio perspective and just immersing myself, you know, as, as much within that culture? Same thing if I'm like really focused on Brazil, like, is it going to be the best to be located there or, you know, could I feasibly make a really great game designed for Brazilians while living in Sweden? And of course you can, but I definitely think there's a big bonus and it makes it a lot easier if you're actually located in the country or in the, in the region we're actually making games for. In our case, there are, there's not that much gaming, game development experience in the Middle East, the region. And Sweden, obviously, we have a lot of, uh, um, it's, it's quite uh, developed, I guess. We have a lot of very experienced developers that have been doing this for years and years. There's a lot of companies, there's a lot of talent that you can actually use to create the game. So I think definitely uh, it's great to be in the area, but if you don't have the, the right talent in the area that can actually do what you need to do, then you have to solve that somehow. But in our case, the solution was to do a hybrid, basically. We have one office in, in Alexandria in Egypt, and with people there that knows the culture, that knows um, uh, the 
audience that we're catering to, and then in Sweden where we could uh, have very experienced developers that can actually create the product and the tech that is needed to do it, basically. So it's almost like having this like tandem of, okay, we've got the, uh, the team over in Egypt that's going to really help us understand kind of the needs of our players. And then I've got this talented tech team that can kind of take that feedback and turn it into like a really quality product. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good uh, way of summarizing it. And obviously we had uh, Magdi here in Sweden. Uh, so we had him with us in the office all the time as well. So he was the, the link with Egypt. He was the one who set up the office and uh, all the contacts and everything and kind of gave us the information needed to uh, design the game for the audience. That's very cool. You know, thinking about the, the MENA region as a whole, um, I, I assume there's some, maybe not as drastic as like, you know, going from America to uh, Saudi Arabia, but, you know, are there differences between different countries over there, like, um, you know, Egypt to, to Saudi Arabia or, you know, otherwise? Yeah, there's uh, huge differences, definitely, culture-wise as well. But there are some things that kind of bind the whole region together, obviously, uh, religion-wise and language-wise, you have some strong connections within between the countries, so to speak. But there's definitely a very big difference between the Saudi players and the Egypt players, for example. And you have to kind of try to cater to both of them and um, try to use the strengths of each group, basically, and what they can contribute to the game. So the Egypt players contribute with some parts that improves the gaming experience. And the Saudi players, for example, were contributing with uh, something else that also contributed to uh, a nice gaming experience. So the combination works out really well, I think, if you have a game that can kind of support this. So do you find that having kind of, uh, say, one game or like one server where everyone's kind of interacting with each other makes the most sense? Or, you know, I have seen some games, and maybe it's not as prolific, but, you know, sometimes you split your servers by like the APAC region versus the North America region to, you know, group your players a little bit differently. Like, um, you know, do you ever recommend doing something like that where like I group my Egyptian players and I group my Saudi players where they kind of have separate gameplay experiences or maybe slightly different economies or, you know, anything like that? Absolutely. It does make a lot of sense to do it. It also has a few drawbacks, I would say. What I've seen is that in these kind of games, obviously conflict is what kind of fuels the gameplay. If everyone is just nice and pleasant towards each other, games become a little bit boring it's become yeah i mean you do the things the artificial things that you as a game designer has, have created for them to kind of fight over and you kind of force them to at least fight here but when it really becomes fun and engaging i think is when players kind of create their own fights they create their own um, conflicts so to speak and that is one thing that is more easily done i would say if you combine egypt for example and saudi arabia at the same time, we know that a lot of players from Saudi Arabia would like to kind of have their dialects. They would, they don't want to see as much maybe the, uh, I mean, the Arabic is different in, in the, all the different countries. And they want to have the Saudi Arabian uh, Arabic, for example, spoken. And that kind of localization in the game, so they will see it in their dialect. They want this, for example. But the Egypt players don't want it in that way. 
what we did was we did it in a like a the generic Arabic. The, I don't know exactly what they call it, but yeah, some kind of thing that everyone knows about, but it's a bit. It's not so natural as it could be if you did it in a specific country dialect, for example, Saudi Arabia. And that's something that could definitely be much better for the Saudi Arabian players if the game was actually made with their dialect in their way of speaking. That we made it for the whole region, which had positive and negative effects, I would say. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, if we get that British uh, English in here where they're putting, you know, all these unnecessary use and words and stuff, you know, totally, totally wrong. No, I I love my British friends. Um, (laughs) um, Did you or do you let your players like chat amongst themselves? Like I assume for a Forex game, you know, you allow the creation of, you know, guilds and things like that. How do you handle localizations and, and players? Like, are they, are, can you make a guild where you have Arabic players and Egyptian players? And I realize there's other countries here, but we'll just, you know, stick to those two for yeah, uh, the sake of these. Um, but yeah, you know, could you have a guild where you have both groups of players, you know, within one guild? Absolutely. It's, it's quite common, I would say, but it's also, I mean, sometimes you have the like big spenders, they want to kind of rule over an alliance and be their boss of an alliance. And uh, it's easy to kind of take uh, players from Egypt that don't spend as much. Uh, they would love to kind of be in that environment and uh, have a big leader that is very strong and can kind of help them and protect them with everything that comes along with this. But also there are alliances where people really want to stick together. The Egyptian players, they play a lot and they fight really hard. They spend a lot of time and the sort of players in general, they also play a lot and, and do uh, fight really hard, but they, they spend, so they have an uh, upside. They spend a lot more in general. So they have, of course, more power in general. So an alliance made solely out of Saudi Arabian players that are paying, will definitely become quite strong. And then several other alliances will have to kind of work together to have a chance against that alliance, for example. But there is definitely a mix of the countries, but you can also set like a flag on your alliance, select a, a, which kind of symbol you want to use, if you want to use a flag or something else. And a lot of alliances, they put their country flag basically of the person who created it. And it's natural that a lot of players from those countries join that specific alliance as well. Do you think, and and I'm getting a little bit towards like game design here, but like, do you think that it is better to leave these different types of decisions to be a little bit uh, more open and let your players almost drive that a little bit of like, okay, I'm going to let whoever wants to join a guild, join a guild, but I'm going to give the clan leader the ability to like write what the description is and to kick people and to have, you know, thresholds and stuff so that they can basically decide hey, I'm the type of player where I want to spend big and I want to have a bunch of people that I can kind of protect. Or, hey, I want to be in a very competitive guild. So I want to be in a lot of, you know, with a lot of people that spend heavily like me. So we're going to be in this like top tier, really competitive, you know, guild or something like that. And, you know, I want to be in just an Egyptian guild with my friends locally that I play, you know, the game with in real life. Um, And so you kind of, give them a framework, but you more let the players decide how they want to orient things. Yeah, it's, again, there's a lot of uh, good and uh, like positive or negative effects with the different approaches, I think. But what I've seen is that it's definitely great to have the players be able to decide and kind of set up the alliance the way they want. It's an invite-only alliance, for example. 
and you just pick and choose the players that you really want to have in your alliance. You create a really strong one. You create one with just Egyptian uh, players, for example. You uh, create uh, one that is focused on uh, the end game a lot, whichever way. I think that's really strong and really helpful. And you let them write their own descriptions and uh, set the limits of who can join. Uh, this is how we we did it. I never saw. I think that my Arabic is not great, but uh, I think I don't think I saw descriptions of alliances that were so specific as to like only high spending players uh, that are aiming really for the top. For example, not these those details were not that common. I think, but one thing that also happens when you kind of let, leave this to the players is that some players might that are not so driven on their own, might not join alliances or might not join an alliance that's good for them or that suits their purpose, which is a very important part of these games to be in an alliance and to have that group. You'd have no chance in the game if you're not in a group. So that kind of destroys the experience a bit. And in this sense, it would be good to have some of these games too, like automatic alliances you're assigned mm-hmm. to one, no matter what, if you want to or not. And this supercell has gone even further uh, as well to kind of just, you have no choice in the matter. You just, they take care. So, uh, which also has a very good uh, effect depending on the game, I think. But when it comes to real-time games, when you can actually interact with the players specifically, like I can take my army and walk to your base and crush you if I want to. When you have that kind of one-to-one, you can just find a guy that you want to find or do something with a specific person. These kind of games, I think, is much more important that you leave up to the players a bit more to decide. But you can do it more automatic if it's like, actually never you don't pick the fight but it's actually picked for you or it's kind of yeah mm-hmm. interesting okay so uh getting back a little bit to the original topic which is you know understanding your players okay so i think that even if i had a studio in let's say egypt i feel like i would probably struggle because you know obviously every egyptian is going to be different right um even if i pick 40 year old egyptian men as my target audience even amongst them they're probably all going to like different amounts things and stuff and a certain subsegment of them are probably going to fit you know the game that i'm designing so um how did you guys actually go about like finding the people that you think are going to be your forex players and understanding like what are the types of things that they want to have in this game did you do like focus groups or surveys or like yeah well what kind of stuff did you guys do and what would you recommend others do i would recommend others to not do what we did Definitely. I know a lot better today than I did back then, but, but uh, I wish we would have done these kind of things. We didn't do anything of that. We didn't have a strong game designer in initially, which is uh, uh, something that I definitely now would have been very serious about. Like, don't build this thing unless you have someone with that knowledge beforehand. So we learned as we went, basically, but then things take a lot longer than uh, they need to. So, but I would, uh, yeah, we didn't do any of these kind of things. Uh, and obviously when it comes to one country, you don't design a game for a country in general, because there's no, I mean, as you said, there's a lot of different people, even if it's a country. Sure, they have some things in common, but when it comes to games, they play all kinds. So you still have to do the same kind of um, uh, focus groups or uh, surveys or research around what you actually need for your specific game, even though you have a very, 
specific target group, Arab speakers, the Gulf, Egypt. Uh, you definitely still have to gather that information to be able to find the right players. Um, I think we uh, were relying a lot also on like Facebook and uh, performance marketing to kind of get the right players in, but you need a lot of skill in that area as well. And uh, that's quite hard. But uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend anyone doing these kind of things to uh, use the tools that are available today. We have a lot of tools that can help you figure out the audience and uh, what they want, uh, uh, traits or, or different uh, kind of tools that will help you a lot in figuring out exactly what your audience is looking for. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I guess I'm just thinking, you know, do you think that 12 traits is, you know, necessarily the best? Way? You know, I, I think about like, let's say Candy Crush. Um, I, I know it's not the first, you know, game that came in, but um, we'll, we'll pretend it's the first. And so, you know, Candy Crush started and blew away the match three um, genre, right? And really established it of uh, the, the true power. Um, but Candy Crush isn't perfect for everyone, right? Um, and I, I think of uh, the players that didn't really enjoy Candy Crush, I, I feel like it kind of was this empty, meaningless experience of like, why would I keep playing level after level after level to just like keep like moving forward when there's really like, there's a story, there's no depth, there's no, you know, why am I doing this? And then Homescapes came in and said, well, you're playing those levels so that you can rebuild this mansion or you can rebuild your garden or whatnot. Um, and, you know, I think that solved something. And then, you know, Lily's Garden came in for the players that were like, well, why do I have a mansion? Like, what's, what's the purpose of this? And they kind of, you know, layered in this like rich narrative so that you're now like connecting with Lily and you're connecting with the characters and you're like building more of this like fundamental depth um, so that like you're more engaged in the story and in her life and you're playing the levels that you can continue to unwind these mysteries and romances and, you know, live this life with her, basically. Um, and it's kind of stepwise and there's like, you know, problems in there. Um, I remember there was a book that I read um, where it was talking about golf. <laughs> and uh, back in probably the early 90s or so, um, there was a company that wanted to make a new golf club. And at that point in time, about 10% of men in uh, America were kind of their target audience of, of men that played golf. Um, and rather than focusing on the 10% of men that played golf, they said, well, let's look at the 90% that don't play golf. So why don't you play golf? And a big delirium problem came about. I was talking to men, which was well, I don't want to play because I suck at it and it's hard to hit the ball and I look like an idiot in front of my friends. Um, and so totally this... Valid. Yeah, totally valid, right? I don't want to slice it when you know, everyone else is very well. Um, and they, uh, they ended up making this club that they called the Big Bertha. And it's got this like really, really big head and it makes much harder to hit the, like not hit the ball or not to do a good job. Um, and they kind of like they exploded. But what was interesting is not only did they bring a lot of men into playing golf or probably some women too, but, you know, men was who they were focusing on. Um, 
And, you know, they, they bought the Big Bertha and they started using it and playing golf. But they also took a lot of players that played golf, but didn't even realize that they had this problem. It was more like, yeah, I have a problem of hitting the ball, but I thought that that was just, you know, who I am. I thought that I kind of sucked at golf and I had to figure out how to, you know, get better myself. I didn't know that there could be a solution for it. Um, had you focused on that 10% of population of players, they probably wouldn't have been able to tell you that their problem is that they can't, you know, hit the ball and you wouldn't have come to that insight. Um, I'm curious, does that sort of mantra translate into games at all? Um, and if so, how do you think you might use that to understand this like mina population or the next 4X version uh, of, of the game that maybe you guys are going to make? Good observation and good points for sure. And I think it has some very big relevance, actually. So the initial thought that the CEO had when he created the company was also that he wanted to take the Forex genre that he had experience with from the web, for example. This was seven years ago or something. And he wanted to uh, bring that together with like the supercell ease and quality and look, basically. So at that time, back in the days, when I was starting out with them, Game of War was huge. That was the thing, basically. So we looked at Game of War a lot. And um, there were some things that they could have done better, but obviously they did amazingly well. There was no question about that Game of War. It was just a fabulous title. And um, so what we tried to do was to take that game or similar game. We used a lot of uh, Game of War as an influence. And we wanted to make the graphics more appealing. And we made, wanted to make it more uh, pleasant and uh, easy on the eye, so to speak, and also make the gameplay easier and reduce the threshold a bit yeah, because it's quite hard to understand and to get into the uh, Game of War, for example. So that was the, the way. And we used uh, other games as a kind of a stepping board to get to something new on a hypothesis that we should have kind of anchored better beforehand. But that was like, yeah, this makes sense in our heads. Let's do this. And uh, then that's what we did. And one of the biggest positive things that we have received from the game is that people like the way it looks and, uh, and the feel of it and that it's much easier in that sense than a lot of other games. So I think it's definitely very relevant that... Um, uh, you kind of take something that is, okay, this is nice, this is good, but what are these shoes? Why are people, not more people playing it? It makes total sense in gaming as well as, as golf and probably most areas, I would think. Yeah. Um, so where did you uh, kind of gain that insight? Was that like uh, just kind of you guys observing it or did you actually, you know, glean from some players that you think would fit well into the game that, you know, it, it's just too hard to get into. Like for me, 4X games, I I just can't really get into them. It's 